You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Uh, I'm a physician down at Stanford, and I'm really excited to be here with you and with Dan Jones, who, as you know, is the editor of the iconic column in the New York Times, Modern Love, which has turned 15 recently. This month. This month, and has now transcended its... Um, and has transcended its original form to be a really beautiful podcast and a couple of books, um, and then this beautiful series. Um, and I hear you have some exciting news about that. Yeah. Um, two hours ago, I learned that Amazon has approved a second season. I think we're curious. The first season is set in New York, and do you think any other cities will be (laughs) the setting for future? Yeah, no, it's not going to be in New York next time. It's Mm. going to be in a different city, Mm. which is pretty much set, but I can't say what it is. We have some suggestions. So so we were just sitting in the back watching the show, and it was really interesting because I think I thought maybe you were going to be quiet or something, and then you were giggling at all the parts that everybody else was giggling at. Um, and I've seen, I, yeah, I've seen this thing like 30 times. Yeah, just, that's what I was curious about. I react, friends of mine have said that. They're like, why are you, like, haven't you seen this before? You know? Yeah. And, um, but this one, especially the last 10 minutes or so, just sort of tear me up every time. I just. Uh... And this is a modern love essay from 2005 by Dan Savage, right? He's right. The, one of the I'm dads. not allowed to say that. You can say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he didn't, um, the author of this essay didn't, um, didn't want to be identified with it because of the sensitivities about open adoption and that oh. writer's child, but it wasn't so hard for a million people to figure it out really fast. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I think you go, I'm sure there are people who have already been watched the series and, or will watch it tonight. And, um, it is very interesting to read the essay and then watch the, I don't know if other people have done that. Also it's, it's you the know. most, um, adapted of all of the essays in the mm. series. Like it really just took a situation mm. and this is really a John Carney story. Mm-hmm. He, he really wrote it, wrote a new story based on, yeah. based on that existing situation. Can you tell us in general, um, maybe across the seven episodes, what you think it has been like or what you've heard from the essayists about uh-huh. their essays being adapted? Yeah, well, f- four of them I, I interviewed. Um, so to coordinate with the, with the series launch, um, I interviewed four essayists, um, Ann Leary, um, Terry Cheney, uh, uh, Julie Hogben, and... <laughs> a fourth one. <laughs> um, and in each case, uh, except for, t- for Terry Cheney, so I'm not like a journalist in the traditional sense, like I'm really an editor, and this is sort of a weird column in the first place. Um, but, um, and I used to do this column from outside of the Times building um, huh. up in Massachusetts where I live, but for the past few years, uh, I've been living in New York during the week and in Massachusetts on the weekend, and I've been working at the Times and sort of getting acclimated to that. And so they're trying to like make me a journalist so that like give me um, give me assignments. So I, I'm not really used to interviewing people um, and turning them into articles. So I thought it would be a great idea to have them 
have them come into the Times and interview them and then show them the episode and then huh. get the reaction to that. And that was just the most fraught experience. <laughs> wow. Like, um, and it went well. And in every case, they really liked the episode. But I, I underestimated like what, what it would be to write a really revealing essay about yourself about a really, you know, about sort of the most important story in your life, have that changed in certain mm -hmm. ways, and then have an actor playing you, mm -hmm. and then sit through it. Um, and they were, um, oh, Deb Kopakin was the last, the last writer. Um, and in every case, they liked it, but it was, for me, I was just like, sort of like, <laughs> watching sure. like this, like, um, just so nervous of, about how they would, would respond. But all of the writers, um, I mean, they were thrilled to be selected for it. It's seven, eight, eight essays out of 700 at mm. that point that we were choosing mm. from. And um, they, yeah, they've come to the premiere party. And yeah, uh, it's, it's been a blast. They've what's it been it. like for you to, well, you're a consulting producer, so I'm not quite sure what that mm -hmm. is. Maybe you can share sort of yeah. like a day in the life or what it was like. Um, and then just how it's maybe felt uh, uh -huh. this what made you want to adapt? That's a double barrel question, but um, I mean, I was just, I was so glad it was happening. Um, and a consulting producer uh, can be, you can be very invisible or you can be very involved. Um, and I, at the beginning, um, my role was helping them with the archive of essays. And, mm -hmm. you know, they just had this huge, they being John Carney, um, who probably read 500 essays for this project. Um, the I'm just going to point out that you've read 100,000. So Yeah. <laughs> so he's just starting out, in other words. <laughs> it's like protege. Um, the two Amazon studio executives who are deeply involved, the executive producer, Todd Hoffman, um, and a couple of other people. And we, um, we just sort of collaborated mostly by email on what... Um, what essays could work. And they were sort of clear to me about, like, don't try to be a television producer. Like, just what do you, what stories, like, really work for you, you know, um, that you are memorable to you? And what, and beyond that, it was variety. You know, what, um, they wanted the, the show to reflect the variety of love that's in the column, not um, just be romantic love or Whatever. So it was, a, and it was really hard trying to represent what you felt like you wanted to represent in eight episodes. Yeah. So, um, and then in the end, they, you know, they wrote a bunch of scripts, and in the end, it was about the strongest script. So it was both a variety, but also like some scripts just didn't work that well. Um, and were you involved in that part? You were reading the scripts and giving feedback. I was reading or? the scripts. I was um, uh, once once we had met as a group, um, we became more of a team. Uh -huh. which was fairly far along into the process. And, th and all on set and all of that, um, it was more like a team. I was always sort of um, just along for the ride. Hmm. I, I would help, um, and I help promote it. And I've been sort of the liaison between um, all these different parties and the Times. Um, mm -hmm. And I've sort of been in the center of all that. And I guess that's probably the, one of the most important roles. But um, for me, it was just a thrill. Like, it was such a thrill to, uh, to participate in it and to see it done in a way that... Um, so there was a previous version of Modern Love Television that happened, oh, like, six or seven years ago um, that didn't go anywhere. They shot a very expensive pilot for an hour-long, an hour very expensive pilot, 
And it was before the age of anthologies. It was really before the streamers, Amazon Studios didn't exist. And, um, but they, it, uh, it started as an HBO project, and they didn't take up the script, and then it became a lifetime project. But it was, um, they created a, um, a sort of regular cast. There was the Modern Love Editor, his colleagues, his, his disintegrating so there was a marriage. In yeah. It. Disintegrating marriage. Um, fictionally. It was, it was fictionally disintegrating marriage. Um, and he was like a science editor, and because he couldn't be, get in touch with his feelings, they made him a, a, they gave him this new column to edit, and then his marriage fall, fell apart and all of that. It, it was, it was a promising script, but it didn't, um, it just didn't quite come together, and they didn't, um, didn't take it up, and I was sort of de- I was devastated because you know I like to see things happen, and it didn't happen. Um, but this this concept is just so much more true mm. to the column, and it's just the same way that the podcast um, takes takes stories and and uh, um, presents them in a new way. And so that's what what made me most mm. happy about it. And I, even though I was on set a lot, you know, I still had a job. I'd go to work every day, and I'd sort of play hooky and go off uh. to the set. Um, which could not have been more fun, and I was, I was, I was an extra in two of two of the episodes. Oh, really? Um, tell us which ones. Uh, episode six. I'm fairly obvious at the beginning of episode six. Episode four. I'm a diner behind um, John Slattery <laughs> and Tina Fey when they're sort of ha- arguing. They're having a family meal in a restaurant, and I'm behind them. And I'm such a good extra. That <laughs> That no one sees me, no one notices me. I showed a, a, a rough version of the episode to my son at home, and I said, "The scene is, is like two minutes, if that." And I said, "I'm in this scene." And we sit there and watch the scene. And he was like, "Where were you?" <laughs> you know? So it was just sort of my head, you know, and just like this, like right behind John Slattery's head. But they're in a conversation that you're paying attention to, and because I'm so, it's really my breakout role as an extra. Um, which means don't move, don't, you know, just look natural. So uh, I'm not, I'm very invisible in that one. <laughs> was there anything in particular that in adapting it was really surprising? Um, what would be surprising about adapting it? Um, I mean, I was, I, I there, there, there's, an, uh, there's an episode that stars Anne Hathaway that, um, I mean, most of the most of the ep- episodes uh, are f- fairly true to they're fairly conventional, I guess. Um, and this Anne Hathaway episode, oh yeah, um, she's playing someone who um, is bipolar and is dating while bipolar, and it's it's this fabulous essay about that by Terry Cheney, who I just saw in LA last night. We did an event together and showed that episode, but, um, it's the, the episode itself is so creatively done. And I was a little worried about that essay as an episode because it's really an episode about her, um, bipolar history and two, two dates that mm-hmm. don't go, either don't happen or don't go well. And I was like, is that enough? Like, um, and, and in that, um, in conceiving that episode, they um, actually I started I started to worry that like the pre- there was so much pressure about this mm. 
doing shooting this in New York. There were six days per episode. There are like, you know, 120 people on set. They're in the middle of the city. Like, I don't know how people do this work. I could never do it in a million years. Huh. And, and it's very intense. And by the time they were doing her episode, like I thought they sort of lost it a little bit because he he had embraced this idea of, he talked to Terry Cheney and she said um, her manic periods are, she feels like she's the star of her own title sequence of a, of a sitcom all the time and everything is more colorful and all of that. And um, so they were really creative in in the, in doing that. And they just decided, let's do that. Let's Let's have her... Be the star of her own sit. Think she's the star it's of her own so sitcom. Good. Let's have her dancing. Yeah. Let's have a, a, a dance sequence break out in the parking lot of Fairway, and um, and all this this crazy stuff happens. But because I only saw pieces of it, I didn't see how the episodes were shaping up. Um, and like that episode, I just thought was all light. I just thought it was all. all I worried that it was going to be all light and fluffy, and. Um, huh. And I didn't see all the all the finished ep- or not even finished episodes, but semi-edited episodes until one night. It was like eleven o'clock at night, um, and I'd been, I'd been asking all day because I knew that they were in a phase where they could be shared. And I was I was asking all day to get them. And they're like, "Oh yeah, they're coming, they're coming." Finally, eleven o'clock at night, I get the email, and my, my the software they gave me is all filled with all these episodes. And I was like, "I'll watch two of them," and and then um, go to bed. I'd get go to work in the morning. And oh my god! So self restraint. I'm impressed. I watched all of them. <laughs> I watched all of them, and I was like just sobbing and sort of a mess. And my glasses were all like you know speckled with water, and it was just mm. it was sort of disgusting. And, um, <laughs> and, and I and but the feeling like I was both moved by the essays, but mostly I just had this feeling of relief, like. Mm. And I just thought they they did it, like they they done. did it, yeah. like they have this combination yeah. of. Um, of emotion and humor and complication, um, all with sort of an upbeat, even when it's problematic. Like she doesn't, in the Anne Hathaway episode, like Terry Cheney's aren't, problems aren't resolved. She's like, right. goes on medication. She figures out how to manage it. She's not, hasn't found love. Like um, there's not, there's not resolution in these cases. Um, even, and in this episode too, it's like, you know, good luck now. Like now you have a, a, a child and a, a homeless Right. A birth mother who's going to be in and out of the child's life, and but there's something so sort of sweet and optimistic mm-hmm. and hopeful, and that's sort of the John mm-hmm. Carney signature mm-hmm. that he doesn't change the story yeah. to make it optimistic. It's just it's presented in a way that does that, and I, and I just love that because that's sort yeah. of how I feel, and I feel like he and I are mm-hmm. good partners in that mm-hmm. sense. That one episode, I think, is really moving. The one you're talking about with Anne Hathaway, where mm-hmm. there's sort of like this musical dance scene in the grocery store, and it's a really moving portrayal of illness. I thought it was actually really good, and it sounded like I read your interview with the essayist, and it sounded like she felt that way too. Like it didn't she was simplify. She really, really happy about situation. it. She was really nervous about it, I and bet. really happy. It was about really brave it. to do yeah. it. I, I yeah. was really impressed. Um, and that's that was an example of of me exercising restraint and not knowing what the hell I was doing with television. Because when I read that script, and I'm sorry for you, those of you, I don't know how many people have seen this episode. It's episode three. Um, so I won't be spoiling things to say there's a very powerful scene at the end. <laughs> um, and when I read that scene in the script, I almost wrote and said, like, are you like seriously like this is like this it seemed improbable to me it seemed forced um and i just oh you're getting questions and i almost wrote and said like 
you know, I just don't find this a credible scene. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, thank God you kept your mouth shut. You know? For like, you. Because it's such an example of like a, a filmmaker. And a couple of times John said to me, like, when I did question things, he was like, well, you'll see how we do that. You know, you'll, mm. I see what you're talking about, but you'll see how we do that. And that was an example of that. When I saw, I hadn't seen that scene being filmed. I'd just seen the dance numbers and, and uh, all of that. So um, when I saw it, I was just like, oh, my God. Mm. Um, I mean, it's nice because I imagine you have actually been on the other side of that a lot, where you're the editor mm-hmm. and people need to trust you. So I kind of love that you trusted them. It was interesting. Well, okay. I'm going to read through these two. So from people downstairs in this room, please keep sending these. Um, I'll definitely ask them. I wanted to mention one thing, which is I read at one point that you were the person who said initially on starting the column, I want to accept submissions from real people at an email address that anybody can write to instead of commissioning the essays. Right. And that's so, I'm, I'm, I was really surprised to hear that because it seems like such a central piece of what you do is real, real stories. Yeah. Um, and the only reason I, I thought to do that, well, there are two reasons I thought to do it. Um, one, because I'd just done a book. My wife and I had done these books, the, the Bitch in the House and The Bastard on the Couch, which were, <laughs> were books about um, sort of difficulties in contemporary marriage. And they, but they were essay collections where we commissioned all these essays from writers. And that's, it's really hard to commission essays from writers. And you get stuff that you have to kill and create bad feelings. And um, you wait for it to come in. You have to press people and all that. So the, the, just the difficulty of that process. But uh, the other part of it was... Um, was I was like a struggling writer for years. Like, and I'd send, send stuff off. And I'm not the best writer in the world, but I knew that, that there are people who were, and there were people who were undiscovered. And so many people, you know, um, who have a story to tell. And th- there's something about modern love where it's... Um, I mean, we, we certainly publish plenty of published authors and people who have books out and all of that. But the person telling their story for the first time... Mm-hmm you're not going to get that out of an established writer. Mm-hmm. Um, often you're not going to get the most important story of their life out of an established writer. So I wanted that. I didn't want to think about what I wanted in the column. I wanted people to tell me what should be in the column through submitting stories that um, demanded to be in the column, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the other thing that I wanted to promise, which is going to get increasingly hard to... Uh, deliver um, is responding mm. to everybody who submits because I'd again as a as a struggling writer in my twenties I would send stuff off and if I never heard back I wouldn't right. send back to that publication again right. because do why? you write something personal like or do, is it just that you want them to know that you did read it it wasn't chosen like uh, it's a standard note I've been told uh-huh. it's very kind um, <laughs> and we put the, we put the person's name on it mm. you know we don't mm. just send it without a name. And it just makes people feel mm-hmm. good, even if it takes six months, which it mm-hmm. sometimes does, just to know. And yeah. people are, you know, 99% of the people are grateful. 1% write nasty notes back. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. But I think the only, when this column started, and I wanted to know how long I could, you know, possibly count on that paycheck, I asked the then style editor what the shelf life is for columns like this. And he said, I don't know, a year, three years. Oh, wild. And, um, <laughs> And I think that the you know the only reason it stays fresh to the extent that it does is that uh, is that process of yeah. of people tr- people trust that they're sending to to a place where it's going to be 
read, um, they get to hear back, and that it's their material that's going to determine what it is. And you know, you can't sit in a you can't sit in a meeting with other editors. And I sit in meetings with other editors all the time, and they come up with ideas for stories. Mm. And I just don't feel like this is something where you can come up with ideas for stories. Like it has to come from. Mm-hmm the great out there. I have a couple questions um, from the great out there, which is <laughs> um, a couple that are on this issue together um, about, have you seen trends in the tonality or the themes or evolution over time of what you're seeing in the submissions? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of different trend lines. Um, some that are just have evolved with social changes and, you know, gay marriage didn't exist. Dating apps hardly existed. Social media hardly existed. Um, cell phones, smartphones, as we know them now and texting, none of that existed when, when the column started. So, um, but, but the problems, the, the problems and the insecurities all remain the same. And, um, it's interesting to me to see how, how we seize on new technology to avoid vulnerability, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how we Mm -hmm. sort of seize on like the, and how, and how we think like technology makes so many things easier. Um, and, 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 and as a shortcut to so many Mm -hmm. things, and we just, we can't get it out of our heads that it should be a shortcut Mm -hmm. to, to love and to making, to finding love and to, to keeping it, that it should be, um, the, the sort of silver bullet for that. And instead it just, um, and I'm not saying it doesn't, I mean, it, so many people have found, you know, love through, um, dating apps and, um, are able to stay in touch through Skype and, and texting. And it's created a whole new kind of intimacy in a lot of ways. And that's, that's interesting to observe. And, um, but, um, I don't there's there's always this sort of aspirational quality to love and relationships that we think we can do it better. Like we look at our parents and we look at our and like optimize. You know, we just think, love. you know, oh, they were stuck in those roles, mm-hmm. but we're going to we're going to bust through all that and we're going to do it better and and we're and, that. and we're always trying to sort of improve it in in that way. And then we're frustrated when we're like mm-hmm. someone leaves us and we're like but we were doing it better, you know, <laughs> like um, and I, I like that about the subject matter because um, it's it's not masterable, you know. Totally it's not. It's it's full of pain and it's full of insecurity and um and it will be your whole life and get used to it. And it sounds know? like you. It sounds <laughs> like you think there's like there's no shortcut through vulnerability, right? Like that is the path, right? But there's a lot of we have more ways to avoid it than ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Um, I have a question from somebody about the show. Um, this person wrote, do you feel as if the viewers of the show will be the, quote, liberals that Carla criticizes? How can we bring other audiences into this discussion that you hope to create? That's a good question, but um, what's interesting about the audience for this show is it's it's global, and um, you know I grew up in a time when TV was local and national, 
And I'm, I can't get my head around um, how Amazon Studios, I don't, I don't know how many Prime members there are in the world, but I know it's at least, you know, 130 million or something like that. And, and they know people are watching it because they just And in, in 200, you, you know, like know. Yeah, 200 yeah. countries or something. And to, to, to create a show um, that's not for San Francisco and New York yeah. and Los Angeles, like, yeah. that's not enough. Like, this yeah. has got to play in New Delhi and then mm. um, Hong Kong and uh, mm. Malaysia, um, Egypt, you know. Mm. So you're, you're conceiving a show that, and it's translated and dubbed into, I think, eight or nine languages. and. Oh, wow. Then it's subtitled in um, a bunch of languages I've never even heard of. Wow. And so what's, yeah. the, you know, to, to anticipate who that audience is and what they want and what they're going to watch again, I don't know, that's just a whole new world to me. Um, but it's not, um, in that way, it's not the same audience as the written column. The podcast yeah. became a little more international than the written column, but this audience... Who knows? We'll find out. Yeah, you'll find out. And that's out. the one thing about it is Amazon will know. Yes, <laughs> that's they'll, wild. They'll know right. every single person who's right. watching this show right. and how long they watch right. it. And, right. you know, they might even know when they're laughing or not if they have a, you know, oh Alexa God. in the room. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I have a number of questions in this pile that are about love generally. And I, when I was taking a lift up here, I told the driver what I was doing and said, I'm going to be part of this event. And I explained the column modern love and talked a little bit about that. And then the conversation evolved very quickly to talking about <laughs> the driver's opinions on polyamory and <laughs> this woman named Sasha. And it was really, it actually became really intimate sort of yeah. quickly. And then I got out of the car and said, good luck with your love life and close the door. And he said, thank you. <laughs> and like, I imagine that this happens to you all the time. Maybe. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm curious about is um, you know, foremost, you're an editor and, but then I, and I imagine lots of other people in it secretly kind of think of you have this, as this love guru, like you've, oh, like yeah. you've seen from the mountaintop or something. And, <laughs> um, so I don't know exactly what the question is. Some of the questions that are in here say, you know, what have you learned about love or, um, what do we misconceive about love that you see repeated struggles with? Right. Um, I mean, I do become that um, that person that people just um, they sort of unload their stories, and um, and it happens in book signing lines. It happens wow. just in, <laughs> in any sort of environment, um, and sometimes, usually, it's um, it's really interesting, and sometimes it's. Um, it gets a little weird and it's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, um, but my, my, I mean, my job, I see my job when I'm working on people's stories. Um, and now I'm not, you know, I've done it long enough where people trust, trust me with their stories. And they, they, so I get on the phone with everybody I publish and sometimes mm. I get on the phone with them for a long time. And I always want to find always out. Always go on the phone, like not hmm? not just email, but you always talk. Oh, always, oh. yeah. And, uh, I mean, I have a lot of purposes for that phone call, but um, but I, a lot of it isn't some pre-planned like list of questions. I just want to probe the story, and I want to find out if there's something more, if there are other connections that could be made, and whatever. Yeah. So it's just a, it's just sort of a free-flowing conversation. But sometimes I I I'm, find myself asking questions that um, like I'm a pretty 
uh, traditional, like, boring, you know, person and shy generally <laughs> and all that. And I'm sort of surprised that I've become this person who just is pressing people for these mm. intimate details of their lives. <laughs> right. And, but under the guise of professionalism, you know, it's sort of <laughs> right. like, like a professional voyeur in a way. <laughs> Um, totally. And people tell me anything. Like, they yeah. absolutely just tell me whatever I ask. Wow, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. They, and, a, and, you know, a few times people will start to withdraw a little bit and they'll say, like, well, wait, are you going to put that in? Like, are you talking about, we, should we put that in? Um, mm-hmm. But the whole, the whole way that an essay, a personal essay, works um, is that the, the reader can't think you're withholding anything. Mm. Like, you it may be that you're withholding things and you're also making choices about what to include and what not to include because you've got 1,500 words to tell the story. But the reader can't think you're hiding anything. And, um, you know, for that reason, I, I love The Times um, has all these rules, you know, that, that magazines don't have and um, oh, where like you can no substitute names and you can, yeah. t- you know, you can use yeah. someone's initial, for, you know, to hide their identity or change names and hide behind all these things. And to me, that that's just erodes the credibility. Every single one of those erodes the credibility because you're not, you're, it's not full disclosure. It's not, doesn't seem like, like full disclosure. So um, off, often what I'm doing with a story is like zeroing in on the parts where it's like, you're not telling everything here and you're not telling mm. everything here and you're trying to make yourself look good here mm. at the expense of that person there. Mm. Um, and all that stuff, like, readers readers sense whether they know it or not it, it they sense it do you have um advice for writers that you whatever it might be i was reading something that you someone was asking you what's your process for going through essays and you say you can go pretty quickly and right but you do give it a chance as you go along but if you see certain i think you said lazy adjectives like amazing <laughs> you'll be like ah, like this is not good and so i'm curious like are there certain things, principles that you look for, um, or general writing advice in a way? Yeah, I'm, um, I mean, the easy thing to spot is um, is is someone who um, is sort of humble and like it's a tone of having been through something and um, and lived to tell the tale in a way. And it's not a, it's not bragging. It's just, um, in fact, it's the opposite of bragging. It's it's like an offering. It's like this tone mm-hmm. of sort of. Mm-hmm. Here's what I have to offer you, um, and and then that has to be that tone, which is um, which is is really about being vulnerable. It's like saying, like I I messed up and um, I was uh, humiliated or I was rejected or um, it's it's admitting all these things that that make you feel bad, um, and and combining that with a kind of intelligence that is um, can can appear at different times in an essay. So that the, the the tone of being uh, of humility sort of will be evident and be probably throughout yeah. the piece. But do you learn something from it? And is that and is what you learn something that actually will make people um, think like will will make them um wiser about love like that's really yeah. hard and that's something i'll search through an essay i'll search for an insight so if i'm reading and i'm not quite you know getting caught up in it or whatever i'll just start skipping around and look for an insight and then mm-hmm. retroactively i think i can build the essay around that insight wow. um 
but that the, the insight is a hard thing for an editor to bring to a piece. You know, you can work on uh, the writing, you can shape it, you can rearrange it and all of that, but it's hard to bring insight. Sometimes that insight can happen in a conversation, mm-hmm. um, but that's what I'll skip around. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, And I think writers cringe when I say this, but um, I'll read like the first couple of paragraphs and then I'll start to skip a little bit and then I'll read the last couple of lines without having read anything that came before that. Huh. And, um, and if there's something, and I can tell, like if there's something that's smart, it'll be evident in those last few lines. Is that because you can tell if they're a good writer, if they ended it in a certain way or because it gets you to where they thought they ended up or something? Like, why do you skip to, I kind of do that too. I'm I just know. realizing, but I don't know. I, I just, um, if there, if there's something really facile about mm. the last few lines, you'll know that what came before it mm. is not smart. Huh. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a couple questions that are, Sort of along the lines of, um, what do you think true love actually is? No pressure. <laughs> I wrote about this in my book, Love Illuminated, because, um, well, I have, a, I have a couple of ways of answering that, I guess, even though I think it's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> we can all stand around and talk about it after. <laughs> I was asked in a, in a radio interview on, on NPR once, the person just, it was just let off by saying, so what is love anyway? And I was like, you're really going to start with that? It was live. I said, you're really going to start with that? <laughs> um, so w- one way I wrote about this, and this will, will date me a little bit, but I don't know how many people have seen the movie E.T. Um, <laughs> But E.T. to me is the embodiment of love. Whoa. And it is, it's because he can heal wounds and he tells people to, <laughs> to be good. He's always telling oh. Elliot to be good. Oh and goodness. I feel like those are the two, um, two oh, sort of beautiful. qualities of love embodied in this mm-hmm. character, healing wounds and being good. And I, had a, mm-hmm. I, was going, I promised you another way of answering that, and now I can't remember what that is. Tell us if you think of it again. <laughs> uh-huh. We all want to hear it. That's so beautiful, it'll, it'll though, E.T. Um, I, my five-year-old daughter was watching E.T. this morning and then turned it off and cried because it was too scary. And she was watching it alone. And I was like, I'll watch this with you. It won't be scary if you watch it together. And now I feel like we have to watch it together. Um, um, the, other, yeah. the other story about love was... Um, right is something I've, I've written about a couple of times as well, which was an essay from many years ago on Mother's Day that was um, a woman, um, I'll try to make it short, but it was a, a couple who had adopted a, a baby in China. And, um, you know, it's a months-long process where you start to get bits of information and pictures and all of that. And they'd sort of fallen, fallen in love with this little girl and um, went to China to, to get her. And when they got there and took her back to the hotel room and stuff and started to undress her, they saw that she'd had like some surgery on her spine and um, they became really worried and they took her to, a, to the hospital and had her examined and she had, um, they did, did a CAT scan or x-ray or whatever and got, started getting these really alarming um, Findings of that she uh, there was a botched surgery, botched spinal surgery. She would never walk. She would. It was all this just just horrific, horrific stuff, and um, and they were devastated. And went the went to the you know the the adoption facilitators or whatever there, 
and they're like, oh, we're so sorry. Um, we, um, in the, in cases like this, we, you know, say, well, you can, you can leave her and wow. we'll get, we'll have, you know, you can leave with a, with a healthy baby and the choice is yours basically. Uh-huh. Um, and what a choice. Like when I read that essay the first time, I was like, what would I do? Like everybody wants the healthy baby. Are you going to, are you going to take the baby that, um, is promised to, uh, be a, have this horrific life and never be able to walk and, um, deteriorate. And there was even something that they said there was a, had some sort of, um, brain injury as well. And it was like this test. It's like, and she said, um, they thought about it for a little while and she's like, no, like, this is our daughter. I'm the mom. Yeah. This is our daughter. Yeah. Um, and we wow. love her. And this is the person. Like, could you imagine that 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 choice of like leaving her behind and le- and the guilt you would feel and all that? But she didn't go there. She was just like, this this is the daughter um, we're meant to have. And amazingly, I mean, she went. She they brought her back to the states. Um, she did have severe problems and seizures and stuff for a good year or two. But ultimately emerged from it not paralyzed. Um, they saw a series of specialists, and um, she had been misdiagnosed and did have problems, but emerged to be a completely healthy um, teenager eventually. I think she's probably 20 now. But that to me is like, mm. you talk about sort of healing wounds and doing mm. good, like that, mm. that's it encapsulated. That's it comes down to choices like that. That's beautiful. Do you remember the last line of that essay? <laughs> Something. Yeah. Well, I'll look at it. It wouldn't have mattered with the last line of the essay. <laughs> right, right. That's lovely. It's like the all-in version of love, I think, is what parents. But I also, and I, I hate how love is always equated with romance. Like, there's such yeah. different things. And... Um, you know, it's, and, and when it's called a romance column or something like romance is, is not love. It's just not, it's a different. Can you talk about that <laughs> a little bit? And also I think like. Romance is what this... traps you into love. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a question I kind of wanted to ask you. Oh, we only have seven minutes. Okay. I'm going to look through <laughs> these cards too. Um, actually I am curious to know. I think people are interested to know what there's an, there's a question here that says, has there ever been an essay you didn't publish that you still think about or that keeps you up at night? And a couple of other people have asked questions like, how does your work reflect back into your own life? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure you have something to say about that. And my side question was as a parent, does it change the way you even just think about life? Like the way Mm -hmm. you've said so many things tonight that feel like they're, they're not even like, romance or love advice, their life advice in a yeah. way, right? So, um, but maybe specifically... I can answer, I can answer both of those. All, um, six, all and, of them? <laughs> yeah, they're really fast. Now we're down to six minutes. So. Um, <laughs> I regret not being able to publish... I've gotten a lot of, you know, some very powerful essays about sexual assault. And oh. um, essays become very hard to publish if they become legal problems. Oh. And... Um, I'm discouraged, you know, it, when, when you're presenting something that hasn't been like, we've published, we published a few like that, but they'd gone, they'd gone through the criminal justice system and there were records of everything, but to have like, he said, she said situations in essays where people can be identified, they just become these huge problems. And, um, 
And they're not really resolvable problems. You can't go to the other party. Like a personal essay is not a reported story where you present everything. It's a one-person story and how they remembered it. Um, but if there are other people involved in, in actual, like, potential criminal activity, it becomes hard. And we did, um, we published a story that I'm really proud of uh, by this woman named Bindu Bansanath, who, um, a young uh, Indian immigrant family um, in New Jersey, and she had been um, uh, sexually abused for years by, not not an uncle, they called him an uncle, but he was a um, you know, like a friend of the family, and it was just this ongoing thing. And she's such a, an incredible writer, young, um, and was able to to write about this stuff. And I was in touch with her for like years over this this story. And she finally was able to do it in a way that that worked. And right. she had report it had gone through the criminal justice system, and it was a devastating piece. And people were really upset by it. They were like, "This is not love." Like they people were. It was one oh, of those ones where we just got a real backlash. Um, but I'm, I was wow. so proud of it and really remain proud of it and just could not believe her bravery and no stepping forth and, and telling this story. And she was like, um, her reasoning was like, um, being silent is what gets people nowhere. Like mm-hmm. being silent is, is just not the place to be with this stuff. And she was sort of willing to take that on. Um, and people are like, this isn't love, modern or not. It's not love. But, and that's... Hmm. It's not, but come on. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> it's like, do you remember the title of that one? It it had to do with Lolita, with the book Lolita. Um, I can't remember what the title title was. It was from like mm. three or four years ago. But she, what was brilliant about it is she was very literary. Um, must have been in high school or so. <laughs> and she got a cop. A, a teacher had given her a copy of Lolita, and she read read Lolita and saw herself in it. Wow. And also saw how, recognized the power that Lolita had in that situation and started behaving the same way with her abuser. Wow. Um, wow. How literature can save your life, wow. literally. Wild. You did one, I think it's called My Body Is Not Your Body. Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. I love it's that. It's so piece. good. Um, My Body Doesn't Belong my to doesn't You. Be- yeah. Um, that one's really good about yeah. being a young girl who's not sexualized at all. And then you grow up and it's like, you literally cannot move in the world without being sexualized. Right. She talks about she talks about how that's not sex and it's not even love. It's actually about power, and it's a really powerful essay. I was right. really glad you published that one too. I loved that piece, and that was another one that people really um, responded to, and just mm. you know, uh, not not in a negative way at all. They were like, "Thank God, this stuff is being said." Mm. Um, okay, we have two minutes. Um, people <laughs> are curious about. Some of your favorites, if you don't mind naming them, just like off the top of your head. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, right? Um, I can never think back that far is the problem. So um, I always think more recently. I mean, we we ran this really charming piece recently that is our most read piece of the year um, that was called um, Let's Meet Again in Five Years. Uh. <laughs> 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 and it was um it was romantic because um it, it's a story that can't happen now yeah. it was about and this is what technology has done to us you know this this couple they, they're 18 or something and really close but um but not you know obviously they're like well we're not going to commit to each other now and um and it was before cell phones and before email and before all of that 
And they completely lost touch. They said, let's let, they made a pact to meet again in five years when they were 23 and that that would be a much more appropriate time if they were to, meant to be. And um, they were living in completely different places in different parts of the country and met on, uh, in front of the pub, New York Public Library. On the steps, there was a, it was a meeting time and place five years down the road and they were not in touch during those intervening five years and didn't even know if the other was going to show up. And then they both did. And it's just a, it's a real life, you know, romantic comedy. Um, but to me, I, 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 and, and also they didn't, when they met up again, they didn't just immediately like run into each other's arms. They're just like, you know, hi, hi, you know, and, <laughs> and they, sort of, they sort of had to get to know you. They showed up because they said uh-huh. they were going to show up. Uh-huh. And then they had uh-huh. to sort of build that into uh-huh. love. It wasn't, they weren't swept off their feet or anything. Um, and she downplayed it the whole time. She was like, our story is not romantic. It was just a practical, it was a practical solution. You know, we were too young. So let's meet when we're not too young. Um, but she said, she sort of acknowledges that the romance isn't the fact that we showed Mm, up. Totally. Are they still together? Yeah. 40 years they've been married. Oh, that is romantic. Um, Thank you for this beautiful column. I think, as you can tell, we really love it. We hope you keep doing it for a long time. And you have <laughs> yeah. a lot of fans. Um, uh, we're getting to the end. So um, Inform has a tradition where they ask everybody, we ask everybody. Oh, no, I forgot about this. Part. What is your What is your 60-second idea to change the world? So um, you're being asked that. What's your 60-second idea we ask everybody? So does the 60 seconds mean... Telling it takes 60 seconds yes. or it's doing it takes 60 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I do, telling it. But you can do both if you want for extra difficulty. Um, I mean, I, my, my 60-second idea to change, change the world um, is to, ha- to, to assume um, that everybody has a story worth hearing and oh. that it's your job to get that story. Mm. And it doesn't mean you know, that you have to sit next to the person on the airplane and assault them with questions and whatever. <laughs> but, but if the opportunity presents itself, um, and it presents itself all the time in dating, like mm. be the person who asks the questions and have the questions be increasingly more probing questions. And if you're getting results, mm. keep it up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, men, be the ones who ask the questions, not the one who talk about yourself all the time, because that's <laughs> how the dynamic often goes. Um, and, and just because everybody does have that story buried in there. And I think that was the, the brilliance of um, this most popular column, modern love column of all time, and one of the most popular New York Times articles of all time, the, to fall in love with anyone do this, where... You you were asking each other 36 questions that got increasingly more probing until you really get to know that, know the, know the person. And, you know, love blooms in that sort of trust and familiarity. And But a lot of people don't do it. They, they don't ask questions of other people and they don't probe and they feel like it's either impolite or they're not interested. And I think a lot of a lot of the divisiveness in the world today could be resolved if, if people were more interested in asking mm. questions and asking, seeking out someone else's story. Mm. That's lovely. Thank you, Dan Jones. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Really Thank you.